This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Seven, Part Ten. The Earl of Bedford had never recovered from the effects of the great calamity which four years before had almost broken his heart. From private as well as public feelings he was adverse to the court, but he was not active in concerting measures against it. His place in the meetings of the malcontents was supplied by his nephew. This was the celebrated Edward Russell, a man of undoubted courage and capacity, but of loose principles and a turbulent temper. He was a sailor had distinguished himself in his profession, and had in the late reign held an office in the palace, but all the ties which bound him to the royal family had been sundered by the death of his cousin William. The daring, unquiet, and vindictive seaman now sat in the councils called by the Dutch envoy as the representative of the boldest and most eager section of the opposition, of those men who, under the name of roundheads, exclusionists, and Whigs, had maintained with various fortune a contest of five and forty years against three successive kings. This party, lately prostrate and almost extinct, but now again full of life and rapidly rising to ascendancy, was troubled by none of the scruples which still impeded the movements of Tories and Trimmers, and was prepared to draw the sword against the tyrant on the first day on which the sword could be drawn with reasonable hope of success. Three men are yet to be mentioned with whom Dickvelt was in confidential communication, and by whose help he hoped to secure the good will of three great professions. Bishop Compton was the agent employed to manage the clergy, Admiral Herbert undertook to exert all his influence over the navy, and an interest was established in the army by the instrumentality of Churchill. The conduct of Compton and Herbert requires no explanation. Having, in all things secular, served the crown with zeal and fidelity, they had incurred the royal displeasure by refusing to be employed as tools for the destruction of their own religion. Both of them had learned by experience how soon James forgot obligations, and how bitterly he remembered what it pleased him to consider as wrongs. The bishop had, by an illegal sentence, been suspended from his episcopal functions. The admiral had in one hour been reduced from opulence to penury. The situation of Churchill was widely different. He had been raised by the royal bounty from obscurity to eminence, and from poverty to wealth. Having started in life a needy ensign, he was now, in his thirty-seventh year, a major-general, a peer of Scotland, a peer of England. He commanded a troop of lifeguards. He had been appointed to several honourable and lucrative offices, and as yet there was no sign that he had lost any part of the favour to which he owed so much. He was bound to James, not only by the common obligations of allegiance, but by military honour, by personal gratitude, and, as appeared to superficial observers, by the strongest ties of interest. But Churchill himself was no superficial observer. He knew exactly what his interest really was. If his master were once at full liberty to employ Papists, not a single Protestant would be employed. For a time, a few highly favoured servants of the Crown might possibly be exempted from the general proscription, in the hope that they would be induced to change their religion. But even these would, after a short respite, fall one by one, as Rochester had already fallen. Churchill might indeed secure himself from this danger, and might raise himself still higher in the royal favour, by conforming to the Church of Rome, 
and it might seem that one who was not less distinguished by avarice and baseness than by capacity and valour was not likely to be shocked at the thought of hearing a mass. But so inconsistent is human nature that there are tender spots even in seared consciences, and thus this man, who had owed his rise to his sister's dishonour, who had been kept by the most profuse, imperious, and shameless of harlots, and whose public life, to those who can look steadily through the dazzling blaze of genius and glory, will appear a prodigy of turpitude, believed implicitly in the religion which he had learned as a boy, and shuddered at the thought of formally abjuring it. A terrible alternative was before him. The earthly evil which he most dreaded was poverty. The one crime from which his heart recoiled was apostasy, and if the designs of the court succeeded, he could not doubt that between poverty and apostasy he must soon make his choice. He therefore determined to cross these designs, and it soon appeared that there was no guilt and no disgrace which he was not ready to incur in order to escape from the necessity of parting either with his places or with his religion. It was not only as a military commander, high in rank and distinguished by skill and courage, that Churchill was able to render services to the opposition. It was, if not absolutely essential, yet most important to the success of William's plans, that his sister-in-law, who in the order of succession to the English throne stood between his wife and himself, should act in cordial union with him. All his difficulties would have been greatly augmented if Anne had declared herself favourable to the indulgence. Which side she might take depended on the will of others, for her understanding was sluggish, and though there was latent in her character a hereditary willfulness and stubbornness, which, many years later, great power and great provocations developed, she was as yet a willing slave to a nature far more vivacious and imperious than her own. The person by whom she was absolutely governed was the wife of Churchill, a woman who afterwards exercised a great influence on the fate of England and of Europe. The name of this celebrated favourite was Sarah Jennings. Her elder sister, Frances, had been distinguished by beauty and levity even among the crowd of beautiful faces and light characters which adorned and disgraced Whitehall during the wild carnival of the Restoration. On one occasion Frances dressed herself like an orange girl, and cried fruit about the streets. Sober people predicted that a girl of so little discretion and delicacy would not easily find a husband. She was, however, twice married, and was now the wife of Tyrconnell. Sarah, less regularly beautiful, was perhaps more attractive. Her face was expressive, her form wanted no feminine charm, and the profusion of her fine hair, not yet disguised by powder according to that barbarous fashion which she lived to see introduced, was the delight of numerous admirers. Among the gallants who sued for her favour, Colonel Churchill, young, handsome, graceful, insinuating, eloquent, and brave, obtained the preference. He must have been enamoured, indeed, for he had little property except the annuity which he had bought with the infamous wages bestowed on him by the Duchess of Cleveland. He was insatiable of riches. Sarah was poor, and a plain girl with a large fortune was proposed to him. His love, after a struggle, prevailed over his avarice. Marriage only strengthened his passion, and to the last hour of his life Sarah enjoyed the pleasure and distinction of being the one human being who was able to mislead that far-sighted and sure-footed judgment, who was fervently loved by that cold heart, and who was servilely feared by that intrepid spirit. In a worldly sense, the fidelity of Churchill's love was amply rewarded. 
His bride, though slenderly portioned, brought with her a dowry which, judiciously employed, made him at length a duke of England, a prince of the empire, the captain-general of a great coalition, the arbiter between mighty princes, and what he valued more, the wealthiest subject in Europe. She had been brought up from childhood with the princess Anne, and a close friendship had arisen between the girls. In character they resembled each other very little. Anne was slow and taciturn. To those whom she loved she was meek. The form which her anger assumed was sullenness. She had a strong sense of religion, and was attached even with bigotry to the rights and government of the Church of England. Sarah was lively and voluble, domineered over those whom she regarded with the most kindness, and when she was offended, vented her rage in tears and tempestuous reproaches. To sanctity she made no pretense, and indeed narrowly escaped the imputation of irreligion. She was not yet what she became when one class of vices had been fully developed in her by prosperity, and another by adversity, when her brain had been turned by success and flattery, when her heart had been ulcerated by disasters and mortifications. She lived to be that most odious and miserable of human beings, an ancient crone at war with her whole kind, at war with her own children and grandchildren, great indeed and rich, but valuing greatness and riches chiefly because they enabled her to brave public opinion, and to indulge without restraint her hatred to the living and the dead. In the reign of James she was regarded as nothing worse than a fine, high-spirited young woman, who could now and then be cross and arbitrary, but whose flaws of temper might well be pardoned in consideration of her charms. It is a common observation that differences of taste, understanding, and disposition are no impediments to friendship, and that the closest intimacies often exist between minds each of which supplies what is wanting to the other. Lady Churchill was loved and even worshipped by Anne. The princess could not live apart from the object of her romantic fondness. She married, and was a faithful and even an affectionate wife. But Prince George, a dull man whose chief pleasures were derived from his dinner and his bottle, acquired over her no influence comparable to that exercised by her female friend, and soon gave himself up with stupid patience to the dominion of that vehement and commanding spirit by which his wife was governed. Children were born to the royal pair, and Anne was by no means without the feelings of a mother, but the tenderness which she felt for her offspring was languid when compared with her devotion to the companion of her early years. At length the princess became impatient of the restraint which etiquette imposed on her. She could not bear to hear the words Madam and Royal Highness from the lips of one who was more to her than a sister. Such words were indeed necessary in the gallery or the drawing-room, but they were disused in the closet. Anne was Mrs. Morley. Lady Churchill was Mrs. Freeman, and under these childish names was carried on during twenty years a correspondence on which at last the fate of administrations and dynasties depended. But as yet Anne had no political power, and little patronage. Her friend attended her as First Lady of the Bedchamber, with a salary of only four hundred pounds a year. There is reason, however, to believe that even at this time Churchill was able to gratify his ruling passion by means of his wife's influence. The princess, though her income was large and her taste simple, contracted debts which her father, not without some murmurs, discharged, and it was rumoured that her embarrassments had been caused by her prodigal bounty to her favourite. At length the time had arrived when this singular friendship was to exercise a great influence on public affairs. What part Anne would take in the contest which distracted England was a matter of deep anxiety. Filial duty was on one side the interests of the religion to which she was sincerely attached, were on the other. 
a less inert nature might well have remained long in suspense when drawn in opposite directions by motives so strong and so respectable but the influence of the churchills decided the question and their patroness became an important member of that extensive league of which the prince of orange was the head end of part ten